0: Genesis chapter 10, and we'll look at the first nine verses of 11, but there's a lot of begats in tens, and we, you're not going to make me read all those, are you? <laughs> no, <laughs> we wouldn't do that to you, <clears> though. <throat> in Genesis chapter 9, we have seen Noah, we've seen Noah in his Good side. We've seen Noah in his bad side where he succumbs to temptation. And one of the reasons Scripture to me is so real, it's so believable, is the characters of Scripture, the Noahs, the Davids, they're shown in their godliness, but they're also shown to us in their moral failures. And you go, yeah. I'm glad for that because uh it makes me appreciate grace and mercy all the more. I'm also very glad that my life isn't exposed in the scriptures for everybody to read about. <laughs> I'm glad the whole world doesn't get to read about Don Hawkins. (laughs) And I bet you are too. (laughs) It's difficult enough for me to live with my past sins. It's difficult enough to live with my past bad decision without having the whole world privy to my mistakes. But we get to look at Noah. We get to look at the character's in scripture and we see the good and we see the bad I recently uh, spoke with a fellow who used to attend here it used to be his home church and he felt like he needed to come to me and talk to me and confess all of his BC sins that's before Christ's sins he had come under condemnation from the from the church he is currently attending and they were urging him to go and confess all of his sins even before he was a Christian to everyone that he knew and I simply told him if his sins are B.C. before Christ and you have repented of them you have no need or reason to confess them to me Now, I can appreciate the fact that this man was attempting to be open and transparent, which we are to be. But our past sins are just that. They are past sins. And uh, unless he had personally sinned against me, which he hadn't, I told him, there's no need for you to confess to me. And that was a relief to him, and he did not confess. So I... But that's just as well, because I wasn't going to confess to him either. (laughs) But I had a question. And I didn't say anything to him, but I was wondering, why did his current church put this guilt trip on him that he needed to confess all of his past sins? It might not have been a question to him, but it sure was a question to me why they would want him to do that. Now, I say all of that to say this. There is only a few of you who need to come humbly to me and confess your sins. And I'll let you know who you are after the service. (laughs) And I hope I'm just kidding, and I hope (laughs) that you don't do that. (laughs) But, you know, Scripture speaks very highly of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. And it's only fitting, though, that Scripture also speaks of Noah's shortcomings. And if you and I were to live like Noah did, 950 years, what would be written about you and I? My goodness. Living to be 950 years old, that doesn't even compute with me. You know what I'm saying? I can't even go there. I'm only 68, (laughs) ha ha, young whippersnapper. But, you know, at 68, I get up every morning and take inventory to see what's working and what isn't working. <laughs> and so I can't even imagine living to be 950 years old. So let's jump into chapter 10. And we'll, uh, we'll reach, we're going to try to go through the whole chapter and part of 11. But chapter 10, verse 1. Now, this is a genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, uh, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. Now, we're going to skip verses 3 and 4 because all they are is begats. Verse 5. From these, the land peoples of the Gentiles were separated into the lands, every one according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. We have the sons of Japheth. Japheth was the father of the, what we call the Indo-European peoples. From Western Europe to India. And they are linked or tied together by similar linguistics. Japheth, uh, his sons settled as far north as Russia, Magog, and as far south as Iran and Iraq. And so this is Noah's son, Japheth. Then in uh, verse 6, we'll, we'll look at verse 6 through 20 here. And the sons of Ham were Cush, Mizorim, Put, and Canaan. In verse 7, we've got more begats. Verse 8. Cush begat Nimrod, he became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, uh, Kalna, and the, and the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, uh, Ire, and Kelah. Now we're skipping verses 12 through 19. You can cover a lot of ground when you skip a lot of verses. We're going to skip 12 through 19. More begats. These were the sons of Ham, verse 20, according to their families, according to their language, in the land and in the nation. Cush, the son of Ham, begat Nimrod. Now we're going to talk about Nimrod a little bit. Nimrod simply means, let us rebel. Can you imagine naming your son that? Ham and his descendants have been cursed by Noah. uh, They're to be in servitude to Shem and Japheth. And it is Cush who is thought to have rejected this curse, this servitude role for himself and his descendants. And Cush now has a son, and he trains that son to be a skilled hunter not only of wild beast, but Nimrod, the son of Cush, becomes a hunter of men. Nimrod is a mighty man, but Nimrod is a very evil man. Nimrod, he rises to power, he settles in the plains of Shinar, and there he will build several cities. And We'll come back to Nimrod in chapter 11, so let's move along here for a moment. Uh, verses, uh, verse 21, And the children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the brother of Japheth, the elder. Now, 22 through 30 are more begats, and we're, we're just going to let those slide again. Verse 31, these were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their language, in their lands, according to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generation, in their nations. From these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So we have Shem, Noah's son, and he settles in an area called Assyria. Abraham, who is about to come on the scene in scripture is probably a descendant of Shem, or at least he comes from that area uh, where uh, Shem's descendants settled down. Now we have a time uh, gap coming here. Time has passed since the flood. Noah has lived another 350 years after the flood, and his descendants have been fruitful in repopulating the earth and then we have Nimrod and Nimrod has the distinction of being one of the most evil men God opposing men who ever rose to power God has his holy men and prophets like Noah, Job and Abraham but Satan also has his disciples or his men of power too to be evil does not always require that you be a mass murderer. To be evil can simply be opposing God or replacing God and doing your own thing. Now, we don't look upon that being evil, do we? Oh, it's my choice. God looks upon it as being evil. You're evil. If you oppose God or you replace God with some other thought, religion, or process. God has a plan and a purpose for every purpose, person rather, who claims to be a Christian. God has a plan for your life. God has a plan for my life. God also has a plan for every nation that calls upon him and considers themselves to be a Christian nation. Now let me get unpolitically correct here. <laughs> Recently, you read about it, I read about it, we heard about it on the news, the Democratic Party had their national convention. This party spokesman introduced an amendment to put God and the Jewish people back in the language of the party, of the Democratic Party. The spooker, the spooker, the speaker. It's not easy being up here. You should try it sometime. Anyway, the speaker was booed three times for even introducing this new language. He was booed. However, he passed the amendment regardless of the booing. Not because it was a majority, but he passed the amendment to put it in the language. Now, why do I mention this? Because it's election week in America. Tuesday, we go to vote. As Christians, and I feel very strong in this, we have a God-given moral responsibility to vote. And to vote righteously. I think every Christian should be in prayer about who they vote for and what they vote for. And this can be difficult. After all, we hear the campaign rhetoric and we hear the false promises uh, from our different candidates. And as Christians, we have a responsibility to stem the tide of advancing immorality in our nation. We are to be light. We're to be salt, and we have that responsibility. So we vote morally and righteously. I showed you a scorecard earlier. We have scorecards if you want to know how that person you want to vote for, how they voted. So we have a scorecard that you can look at. But here's the thing. Here's how I see the problem. And it's me, okay? We have a situation where neither presidential candidate is a Christian. Welcome to Christian America. Neither candidate is a follower of Christ. Now they want you to think they are, but they're not. All you gotta do is examine their life a little bit. The incumbent, our president, has proven over the last four years That indeed he is not a Christian man. Sue me, I don't care. He is not a Christian. And the other choice, well, we got a great choice. He openly belongs to a cult. Oh, yippee, who do I vote for? Mormonism is not Christianity, folks. It is a cult. And I'm sorry I have to say that, but it's the truth. So here we are. We're faced with voting in Christian America for a lesser of two evils. And that's what we're faced with. But we do have people running for office, senators and congressmen, and other officials Who have taken a stand for righteousness, and they deserve our vote and our support. Here in Christian America, we have those who support abortion. We have those who support a perverted sexual lifestyle. And that's putting it mildly. Those happen to be people that no Christian should ever vote for. Point blank. They are against God in their philosophy and thought and way of governing. Now, unfortunately, we have men and women running for public office here in America who are as every bit as evil as Nimrod, who has the reputation of being one of the most evil men who ever lived. Nimrod, according to Bible scholars in Jewish history, was responsible for establishing anti-God governments throughout the Middle East. I have often told my children, and anybody else who would listen to me, <laughs> all the evil politicians and all the evil leaders of the world are not in foreign countries. We have our own fair share right here in America. We have those who oppose God here in America, who are in a position in the government, and they do not deserve a Christian's vote. It's that simple. So make sure you vote this Tuesday and vote righteously And vote wisely and prayerfully. Got on a soapbox, didn't I? I'm off this soapbox. Now, Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. I'll try to to stick to scripture now. (laughs) Now the whole world had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found the plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. that they, they had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they purpose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Nimrod is believed by most, uh, most Bible scholars, most Bible commentators, to be the main builder of Babel. We have astrological and occult behavior in all their organizations, and they all find their beginning, their origins, at Babel. The plains of Shinar is simply another term for Babylon. They build a tower, a city, and they build it out of baked bricks, and they use asphalt for mortar. The same water sealing asphalt that Noah used on the ark. And you say, well, that's a coincidence. They needed to stick the bricks together somehow. No, there's many who believe that Babel was attempting to make itself waterproof because they didn't believe God's command that he would never again would destroy the world with water, with floods. So we have men trying to circumvent what they think is a God's promise. Verse 5, God takes note of the Tower of Babel. This tower in Babel is nothing more than a place of worship for men who oppose God. And you say, well, why in the world would anyone build a tower to worship in? Well, America's had her towers, hasn't she? In 2001, we had the twin towers of finance in New York City that were destroyed by terrorists. You know, you listen to that, you watch it on TV, and every now and then you get a A moment of clarity, a moment of truth. And I heard one news reporter say, when he described the towers, he says, it's the financial temples of America where the rich worship. And I thought, wow. (laughs) That guy hit the nail on the head. But the Tower of Babel was nothing more than this edifice of man's intellect, which is opposed to, or in place of God, the living God. Verse 6 tells us the people are one. They're united. And they're united against God. Now, those of Babel didn't necessarily adopt anti-God legislation, like we do here in America. They didn't make signs or posters declaring we are against God but their opposition to God was simply adopting another form of worship their own intellect and their own pleasure is that worship here we are and we're in a worldwide recession right now. Many, many people out of work, many, many people having to cut back in their budgets just to make ends meet. But the biggest expense that mankind refuses to bring under control of their budget is what we call our pleasure. Expense. We refuse to limit or cut back on our pleasures. Toy sales, adult toy sales, are as big as ever. They haven't been cut back at all. So we go to verse 7. We have the Godhead, and he confuses mankind, and he's separating people. And he separates people from one another, and he simply does it by language. Uh, Isn't it amazing how God can just totally separate a people just by making them not understand one another? And he did this. But I want you to consider for a moment the advancements in technology that is going on in our world today. They say technology right now is doubling up something like every eight years or something incredible like this. And part of that advancement is because we now speak a common language. It's called computerese. That's a made up word, but it's, you know what I'm talking about. We now communicate through computers. Our our communication on the internet even has its own little language, its own little acronyms. If you need information on any subject, what do you do? You Google it. No need for encyclopedias anymore, you Google whatever you want to know. And we use um, terms like LOL. I'm just learning these, by the way. (laughs) OMG, you've heard that one? Oh, my God. For those who use these acronyms, they are not necessarily talking about the God we serve. They're just using it as an expression, but they use the name of God. And they use that term instead of paying respect, To the living God. And when they type out OMG, they are not respecting our Lord and our God. And that was what Babel was like. Babel, a great city, a tremendous system, but they were apart from and they were in place of the living God. So what is the lesson that we learn today from Nimrod? What do we learn from Babel? What is God wanting to tell you and I through Scripture about the past sins, the past errors of Babylon? It's really relatively simple. For me, it's make sure you take time to worship and praise the living God. Worship. Mike and the worship team put a lot of time and practice into it. Worship is not just to loosen you folks up where you'll listen to my sermon. Sometimes I wish I'd go on a little longer, but <laughs> Mike, what was all them drum solos we were hearing this morning? Huh? <laughs> I, I too. He was getting into it, wasn't he? He was doing all right. <laughs> but worship sort of forces us to take time to separate ourselves from our daily lives. We come in here in. I stand in the back sometimes, and I watch you people worshiping, and I know I shouldn't. you can't see the heart, but I can see you're enjoying worship, and that's good. That's a good thing, and we are to take time to separate ourselves from the daily grind. I'm so glad that we still have Sundays set aside where we can come to church and worship we also need to take time to separate ourselves from some of the distractions that are in our daily lives like a computer monitor oh, could have talked all day without saying that, couldn't I? how about the internet? it can be very addicting by the way and it can be very, very time-consuming The people of Babel did not necessarily hate God. They just wanted to replace Him. They wanted to push Him aside to a place of unimportance in their life. And for you, my Christian friend, God says this, and He openly says this to man, I will have no other gods before me. Wow. What does God mean when he says that? He says, I'm worthy of your allegiance. I'm worthy of your time. I'm worthy to be worshipped. So worship me. And God will not take a position of second place in our lives. He will not do it. He will change our lives. He will bring havoc to our lives before he allows us to put him in a place of second place. Uh, these little marquees that you see in some of the churches when you drive around. And it says, if God is your co pilot, change seats. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> you know, change seats. Make him pilot. But God will have no other gods before him. He's secure in and of himself enough that he will not let you relegate him to second place. He won't do it. Now, the God of Babel is very similar, I think, to the God of the Internet and the God of the computer because it's bringing that language into one. This knowledge is increasing, and we spend more and more time involved many of us on the internet that we do in our worship and praise of God these things ought not to be we have a god who loves us who gave us his son to die for us he deserves our allegiance he deserves our worship and praise So, my Christian friend, let us be quick, quick to worship and praise the God who loves us so much. Amen. Let me get you to stand and we'll close in prayer.